Hi, this is Dusty from Gaze at the National Parks, and you have found our episode on John Muir and the National Park System. This episode was recorded and released in the spring of 2020. After having done our own research on John Muir's role in helping to develop the National Park System, a great deal of information was brought to light on his racist history and views. While John Muir was an important conservationist, it in no way dismisses his attitudes and agenda when it came to race. Mike and I are committed to sharing the stories of the diverse voices of the National Park System, along with our hikes in the parks themselves. While we do our own research on the topics that are a part of our Trail Mix episodes, there are times like these where this information is buried among the deluge. That being said, we have always committed to do better and to admit where we may have erred and to have learned from the experience that we have had. The episode that you are about to listen to has been left in its original format other than this post-recorded opening announcement, as John Muir's story is undoubtedly tied to the national park system. Please listen to the final trail mix of season two that deals specifically with John Muir, Teddy Roosevelt, and racism when it comes to access and being a part of the narrative of our public lands. Please look for this episode as a continuation and further explanation of how we can all be better stewards of humanity and work against the racist past of these two historical figures. Thank you. Everyone needs beauty, as well as bread, places to play in and pray in, where nature may heal and cheer and give strength to the body and soul alike. John Muir, 1869. Hello and welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. And we are still recording separately because of the stay-at-home orders of COVID-19. That is correct. We're hoping to return to a world where we can interact soon, but until then, we are at home following the rules. That's right. And doing some socially distant activities when we can, like socially distant walks, because a sister needs to see a sister and not over the internet. That's right. That's right. That's right. I am tired of seeing you through a screen. I'm tired of seeing everyone through a screen. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> anyway, today's trail mix is all about John Muir. John Muir is a name that gets thrown around a lot when we talk about national parks. We're going to get into, you know, his life and who he was and what he did. But Mike, tell us what is your current understanding and experience with John Muir? Well, John Muir, I know, was instrumental in the founding of the national park system because of a very famous camping trip that he took with Teddy Roosevelt, which I'm sure we'll talk about. My experience with John Muir was on my actual first trip to Yosemite National Park, which is the first park that I ever visited. Um, I was in San Francisco. It was my first year of teaching, and I was there on spring break, and I had gone to Yosemite for a day, come back, and was headed to Sonoma to wine country on a, a tour. And on that tour, we were able to stop for about two hours at Muir Woods. And so that's the first time I think I really heard the name John Muir. Um, and had a, a good understanding of what he did and what he accomplished from being in Muir Woods, um, which is kind of just outside of San Francisco. And it's an incredible temple of nature, essentially. What about you, Dusty? So John Muir, I know that he is the person who wrote 
the book Our National Parks, which I have on my shelf right next to me right now. I saw his name a lot when we were in Yosemite National Park. And I know about the instrumental camping trip he took with Teddy Roosevelt. Other than that, I don't know much about the events of his life. So I'm excited that we're doing this trail mix today. Yeah, I mean, he's such an important figure when you think about the national parks. It's just like what we had our trail mix earlier this season about Teddy Roosevelt. You can't really have that, uh, you know, you can't really talk about the national parks and Teddy Roosevelt if you don't talk about John Muir and, and kind of vice versa. You can't talk about John Muir and the national parks if you don't talk about Teddy Roosevelt. I think they're like hand in hand. Hand in hand. It's very true. It's Mm -hmm. very true. And the reason they are hand in hand is because of all of John Muir's writings. Frankly, that is the thing that really sort of like spurred what became the conservationist movement in America. John Muir is one of the country's most famous naturalists and conservationists. Uh, The Muir Woods, which is near San Francisco, Mm -hmm. which is part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, that's named after him. He's also credited with helping to create the national park system and establish what is called the Sierra Club. And he also, throughout his entire life, educated Americans about the value of our country's wilderness, and he continues to inspire generations of wilderness advocates. So let's get into the early part of his life. Right. So John Muir was born on April 21st of 1838 in Dunbar, Scotland. Um, And he eventually moved with his family to a Wisconsin farm in 1849. Uh, His father was a Presbyterian minister, and he treated him very harshly and insisted that Muir memorize the Bible. Um, By age 11, he was able to recite three quarters of the Old Testament by heart, which seems like a crazy feat. That seems extreme (laughs) to me. It also says that he could do all of the New Testament. And I'm a little bit like, I mean, it was a different time. People learned differently right. then, but mm-hmm. that seems extreme. Yeah. Um, so he was fascinated by nature from an early age, and he was very eager to learn about his environment. His family didn't have enough money to send him to school, though. Um, so after completing his daily farm chores, um, he spent his spare time teaching himself algebra and geometry. Um, And as a child, he designed many inventions that would ease the family's work. So it's clear that John Muir is kind of like a cut above the rest um, when you are thinking about someone that really pulled himself up by his bootstraps um, as far as education goes. Teaching yourself algebra and geometry seems like torture to me. It's amazing that he was able to do that. And then not only that, he's able to um, enhance his family's farm by creating inventions that are helping to um, perform farm tasks, um, which is kind of incredible for someone that couldn't go to school, um, that he was doing this all by himself. When researching the story of John Muir, he could be called a restless adventurer. So many times he'd like get into one place and he'd be like, no, I can't stay here. And then he would leave. Mm. So like, for example, when he went to, he started college at the University of Wisconsin in 1861 and he was studying chemistry and geology and botany, but he was like so done with school and he was like, I just want to get out. And he wanted to go into what he called the University of the Wilderness. He got blinded in a factory incident. uh, And then after he finally regained his sight, he was like, 
no, I'm out. So he, um, <laughs> he, peace, y'all. No lie, he set out on a 1,000 mile walk from where he was in Wisconsin. Like he made it to Kentucky and then he walked all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and like wow. just like collected leaves along the way and was just like, I'm going out and I'm walking. And yeah, so like he wrote a book actually called. A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf. And this is a quote from that book, which um, he's actually really very much known for this quote in particular. Why should man value himself as more than a small part of the one great unit of creation? And what creature of all that the Lord has taken the pains to make is not essential to the completeness of that unit? the cosmos, the universe would be incomplete without man, but it would also be incomplete without the smallest transmicroscopic creature that dwells beyond our conceitful eyes and knowledge. That's deep. <laughs> it was deep and also kind of, I mean, dare I say radical, radical yeah. at a time. That book was published in 1916, but he did this walk in 1867, you can hear the influences of his Presbyterian upbringing in that quote. But, you know, this idea that we aren't the center of the universe, and that we are just one of the many, many creatures on the earth, that we need to really consider our place. We're just one of many things. Yeah, I feel like we would have um, enjoyed taking that walk with him. Also, I feel like he was the inspiration for Forrest Gump's run through the country. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Right? I, when I was w- watching this, I was like, uh, or watching this, when I was researching it, I was like, oh, look at that. He liked long walks too. I know. And look. how fascinating that long walks led him to the national parks. I know. Like I some know. other people that we know. Like some other gays <laughs> I'm familiar with. But that just implied that he was gay as well. Oh, well, I'm not implying that. Right. And uh, from what I understand, he was not. Right, okay. We do get this book, um, A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf. He does get give up a lot throughout his life. And by give up, I don't mean that he throws the towel in, although that's he does do that too. But um, he does like he he moves from place to place very often. He left from Louisville and traveled to Florida, where he actually was sickened with malaria. And so without being fully recovered from that, he moved to Cuba. So he definitely like, is hopping from place to place to place. However, The illness, the heat, and the humidity did not agree with him. He changed his course yet again. He hopped a boat carrying oranges from Havana to New York. And then from there, he headed to California and the Sierra Nevada. A lot of people, a lot of like reports on him will leave out the Cuba and the New York thing. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by the fact that that happened in between. Yeah. So, I mean, he definitely has the drive to move and to like not you know, at least in his, you know, earlier days, like not settle, really. Um, He, you know, does eventually make it to California and into the Sierra Nevada um, and Yosemite Valley. This is clearly his like heavenscape. This is what really kind of, I think, seeds the idea for him that spaces should be preserved. And I think that idea then eventually just continues to snowball. He called the Sierra Nevada mountains the most divinely beautiful of all mountain chains he had ever seen. After he made it to California, he walked again, long walks from San Francisco to Yosemite Valley. He was so entranced by like 
the peaks and the trees and the water, he called this valley the range of light. And like, he's kind of known for that phrase. He began like doing a lot of wandering around Yosemite Valley. He was so inspired by it. And he started writing down some of his, what he was seeing, some of his observations. This was really the start of him as a writer. He started to write down what he observed and that turned into, that eventually later turned into like theory and sort of like persuasive writing as to why we should preserve these lands. But as he started out as a writer, he started publishing articles in Overland Monthly, in Harper's Magazine. When his articles started taking off, this is sort of what got him to be famous at the time, which is, my name is published in, you know, some kind of periodical. And that is what sort of started to bring him fame. I love this quote. It's from his book, The Mountains of California. Winds are advertisements of all they touch. However much or little we may be able to read them, telling their wonderings even by their sense alone. Mm. Well, I think it's also like his his language, because I have read a little bit of our national parks, I think the first few chapters, and his language is so descriptive. And so it's, it's I wouldn't say that it's incredibly flowery, but it's concise yet beautifully composed. Like, and that's what I find from his language most of the time. Um, and- but that I wouldn't said, say that I also don't yeah. feel like it's overwritten. Like, no, that's he what I was just about to lot, say. Yes. But it doesn't feel overwritten. No, it's not flowery. It's not like over embellished by any means. Um, so in the summer of 1871, when he's 33, so, you know, that's basically our age. You know, it's my, my third 33rd birthday right now. So the Smithsonian Institute asked him to send along reports of what he discovered on his walks through the California high peaks. Within months, Muir discovered glaciers in the Sierra Nevada and soon began measuring them, and in December reported his findings in the New York Tribune. And this is a quote from that article. The Great Valley itself, together with all of its various domes and walls, was brought forth and fashioned by a grand combination of glaciers, acting in certain directions against granite of peculiar physical structure. So this theory that he has that glaciers form Yosemite Valley is something that ends up becoming proven more right than it is wrong. The professional geology community is still very young. And eventually what happens is they they do start to realize that Yosemite Valley had glacial origins and that a lot of that was theorized by Muir. Here's another quote from John of the Mountains, the unpublished journals of John Muir. I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown. For going out, I found I was really going in. So again, I think that's such a beautiful sentiment when at least when I think about going out into the world and into the wilderness, I should say, because I do feel like there is that inward journey that we experience when we're out in nature, um, as much as we are out exploring, you know, the vastness of the natural splendor that we're in, there is definitely a path inward that I find myself on a lot of the times. And even when we're together hiking, I find that there's so many times that you and I are just quiet and really taking it, taking everything in, but also very much so kind of in our own head spaces. But I think that's directly influenced by the world that we're 
exploring at that time. Speaking of being radical, I mean, it's a little radical at this time to like walk into an area and theorize that like something was formed by glaciers. Right. Especially in California. Sure. So I understand why some people were a little hesitant to believe him. Especially at this time when you have a very young science like geology and so many sciences that were in their infancy still. And, you know, it's amazing just thinking about how much has evolved in different sciences just from a better understanding or a clearer perspective. So it definitely, I'm sure, was a very radical statement, but clearly after study, it was easily proven. Eventually, he does marry to a woman named Louis Wanda Strenzel. Her family had a farm which he took over and turned into a profitable orchard business. But he, as we had said before, kind of became restless when he was tied down into a, a place for too long. Um, you know, let's hop a boat to, you know, from Havana to New York and, you know, see what happens. So um, let's his, just walk a thousand miles. Yeah, let's just to walk the a thousand of miles. Mexico. Yeah. Let's be Forrest Gump before Forrest Gump. At his wife's own urgings, he traveled to both Alaska's Glacial Bay and also Washington's Mount Rainier, which basically, through his writings, gave national attention to these other incredibly beautiful places, which, you know, eventually do also become national parks. It's clear that his opinions and his writings and his exploration of these places were such an important push in so many ways to have them nationally and federally recognized when the time does come about for the national park system to really take off and get into gear. He took a little bit of a break from writing, right? Like he got married in 1880. Then 10 years later in 1890 is when Yosemite National Park was established. He had written some articles in between this time, but he'd kind of taken a break. And then there was another person named Robert Underwood Johnson, who was an editor for The Century, which is was an East Coast publication. And he was like, listen, if you write articles for the century, these articles are going to get put in front of the right people. There was, at the time, a movement of conservation. Other countries had started like preserving land for various reasons, or governments had started to preserve land as parks or as just, you know, stuff you can't touch. And so there was this hope that that could happen here. So he started writing these articles for the century that helped everyone sort of understand that there was this area, which we now know as Yosemite National Park, that really should be untouched, that became his work for a long time. That kind of started this campaign for Congress to like preserve Yosemite National Park, which eventually after a lot of battles, they did successfully create Yosemite National Park in 1890. And then in 1892, which is only, you know, two years after that, he and a whole bunch of other like-minded people co-founded what was called the Sierra Club, whose mission is to explore, enjoy, and protect the Sierra Nevada Mountains and other mountains in the U.S. Michael, please tell us about the famous, famous camping trip that is probably the most 
influential camping trip in all of conservation history. In 1903, Teddy Roosevelt spends about four days with John Muir in Yosemite, camping with him and learning about the valley itself, but also the value of the untamed wilderness. Basically, this trip is a campaign for Muir in some ways, because it really, from a conservationist perspective, sets up a lot of important dominoes in place for the conservation movement and by way of political action and getting the right people to look at the right things and talk about having the right person to look at the right things. You have Teddy Roosevelt right in front of you. He persuaded Roosevelt to return to Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove to federal protection as part of Yosemite National Park. Teddy Roosevelt is probably the one president we kind of point to for jumpstarting so much of the national park system. You know, obviously he's responsible for the United States Forestry Service. We think of him in a lot of ways as being very responsible for the actions of and the furthering of the national park system. During Roosevelt's political term in office, which was lengthy because remember, he came into office because of assassination. So he finished out the term of a sitting president, and then he was elected twice. Teddy Roosevelt's such an interesting character from history because then he like basically set up William Howard Taft to take the office of the presidency to like he like, you know, promoted him because he didn't want to run for a third term. Because at this point, you know, there weren't term limits. And then he gets really mad at Taft because Taft is not doing what he wants him to do. And so that that whole like little bit of history is interesting. But anyway, I digress. He is able to basically set up in his time in office and set aside 148 million acres of forest reserves. He creates 50 regions for the protection of wildlife. He founds 16 national monuments and establishes five new national parks, some of which remain national parks, some of which turn into other things, because not all five of them are still national parks to this day. Amid all of the things that John Muir championed, he also was a leading voice for the protection of the Petrified Forest, also the Grand Canyon, also what became the General Grant National Park, which we now know as Kings Canyon and also Sequoia National Park. He was like a real supporter of like turning the middle of California into protected federal land, though a lot of the work that he started doing in his life was completed by other people later after his death. At this point, Mir has done a lot of wandering throughout his life. He's becoming much older. One of his final acts was to prevent the city of San Francisco from building a dam and creating a massive water reservoir and Yosemite's Hetchy Valley, and it ended in bitter defeat with federal approval of the project in 1913. He died a year later in 1914 on Christmas Eve at the age of 76. He was the founder and first president of the Sierra Club, uh, Muir Woods National Monument, a grove of redwoods, which is north of San Francisco, which we talked about at the beginning of this episode, is named in his honor. And it's a it's a really incredible place to get to. If you ever are in the Bay Area, it's a must-see. This is a quote from John Muir from John of the Mountains um, in an unpublished journal of John Muir. Most people are on the world, not in it. Have no conscious sympathy or relationship to anything about them. Undiffused, separate, and rigidly alone, like marbles of polished stone, touching, but separate. And 
Boy, howdy, if that quote don't hit hard to home right now. <laughs> I know, I know. Holy cow. Um, just for the record. I'm just going to cry am... over here in the corner <laughs> because, wow. I threw that in and I didn't tell you about it ahead of no, time. No, you didn't. Secrets. I threw that in. I was like, ooh, that hit me right in the middle. And I did not tell you that quote was coming. Yeah, I was like, ooh, and it's so beautiful. Again, his words are precise. They're just, he knows the right notes to hit and there's nothing extra and i would say i feel like he if you like take a look at like his writing over time i feel like he didn't start out as like a writer who would make profound connections between humanity and nature like he like he had to go on that all of those walks and spend all that time in nature and spend all that time writing about nature in order to finally get to a place where he could make those connections. Well, just think about the headspace you're in, like walking for a thousand miles, and all you have is yourself. And I mean, aren't some of us already there right now? Not that we're out in nature, but all we have is ourselves right now in some way, shape, or form. So I can understand the almost profound thoughts that one might have after walking by oneself for a thousand miles, you know, and being in nature. It it makes a lot of sense. When you have all that time, you have nothing but time to think on your hands. And what better place to think than out in the natural world? The Sierra Club is now one of the largest environmental organizations in the world. It has literally like 2.5 million members and supporters. Its priorities have now moved into protecting clean air, soil, water, and also land. But their highest priority today is reversing climate change and creating clean and renewable energy for the future. Before we leave you with the last quote of this trail mix, we just want to tell you that all of the information you heard on this trail mix today came from pbs.org, nps.gov, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and also from the Sierra Club themselves. As long as I live, I'll hear waterfalls and birds and wind sing. I'll interpret the rocks, learn the language of the flood, storm and the avalanche. I'll acquaint myself with the glaciers and the wild gardens and get as near the heart of the world as I can. Quoted from John Muir's journals, Son of the Wilderness, The Life of John Muir. And now let's end this trail mix with a game. Let's play Pentagram. Great. Okay, we're going to try and summon John Muir in the Pentagram. What are you going to put in it? Mmm... I think I would put a journal. Right. Some some leaves he collected from his journey. <laughs> because um, I feel what, like... He, what kind of boat did he get on in Havana? An orange boat. So I would put an orange. <laughs> I feel like we would have to put like a Sierra Club something or other. Like a, and then I also like think... Like a pin or something from the Sierra Club. Like a really old copy of the Bible. Oh, probably. Yeah. And then I think we did it. Isn't that five? That's five. That's five. Look at that. Okay, so if we were going to summon Yosemite National Park, what five items would we put in the pentagram? Well, I think I would put a copy of Free Solo, the movie. (laughs) Okay. I think I would have to put water in there somehow, like either like a bowl of water or some kind of... I just feel like you can't... Yosemite is incomplete without its water, so... Right. I think I would put a mirror in for Mirror Lake... 
because I feel like mm. that's a, you know, it's not the biggest of landmarks, but I do feel like it's an important landmark that comes up often. Come up with one more because I've got the last one. Oh, no, I have the last one. No, I have the last one. No, it's the suntan lotion. It's the suntan lotion. <laughs> <laughs> it is the suntan lotion that we lost. Right. It is okay, so it looks lotion. like we're both putting in. You know what? You put in the suntan lotion that we lost, and I'm going to put in the bottle of suntan lotion we had to buy for Great. $30. Great. And now we've summoned Yosemite <laughs> National Park. If only it were that easy, I would be there in a heartbeat. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. For images from our episodes, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks mentioned on our show, visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com, and that's gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website is by Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard.